Welcome to a mini-series of Neurosalience, featuring interviews with some of this year's annual meeting's keynote speakers. Our guest today is Dr. Emily Jacobs. She's an associate professor of psychology and brain sciences at UC Santa Barbara and director of the N.S. Bowers Women's Brain Health Initiative at the University of California. She received a PhD in neuroscience from UC Berkeley and a Bachelor of Arts in Neuroscience from Smith College. Prior to UC Santa Barbara, she was an instructor at Harvard Medical School and the Department of Medicine and Division of Women's Health at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Her laboratory uses brain imaging, endocrine, and computational approaches to deepen our understanding of hormone action in the human brain. Major initiatives include the study of endocrine aging during the midlife transition to menopause, pharmacological studies of gonadal hormone suppression, and dense sampling studies across the menstrual cycle and pregnancy. She was named a Hellman Fellow, a Brain and Behavior Young Investigator, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health and Society Scholar, a National Institute of Health BIRCWH Women's Health Fellow, and a National Academy of Sciences Frontiers of Science Cavley Fellow for Distinguished Young Scientists Under 45. In 2002, she was named one of 10 scientists to watch by Science News. In addition to her research, her lab advocates for diversity in science. Her lab regularly partners with K-12 groups to advance girls' representation in STEM, uh, work that was featured in the book Steminists, the life work of 12 women scientists and engineers. With that, here we go with uh, our chat with Emily. Maybe we can just begin with a little background about who you are and maybe how you found your way into science and the current research path that you're on. Yeah. Uh, so my love of science, uh, I don't have some grand origin story. Um, you know, I was just kind of a nerd growing up and um, was exposed to a lot of different ideas. And science was the one that I guess clicked and made sense in my mind. But that wasn't really didn't really crystallize in uh, for neuroscience until I went to college and it was a series of, of beautiful oopses um, my I went to Smith um, and my roommate at the time was signed up for a neuroscience class and I was like hey that seems cool I'm gonna rearrange my schedule and sit in and after one lecture with Mary Harrington uh, I was sold uh, it really was that just you know, I was totally mystified by this three pound organ and how much we knew at the time and, you know, overwhelmed by how much we still had uh, yet to discover. And so um, I really, it was that simple. I just, you know, inspired by my roommate and then sort of her um, prowess with taking this class, I, um, I joined the fray and became a neuroscience major at Smith, had absolutely phenomenal instructors who were just virtuosos in the classroom who made science come alive. Yeah, it was, it, it hooked me. And so I went to, uh, 
Uh, I at the time, so this is going to age myself. I um, started at Smith year 2000. I graduated in 2004, and so this was coinciding with, you know, really kind of uh, the heyday. Um, you know, that's still sort of ongoing, but the heyday for um, human brain imaging, because mm-hmm. um, it was in the mid 90s when. MRI went from sort of being in the bowels of um, medical centers used primarily clinically to really accessible, uh, certainly in the United States at a widespread level and for research dedicated purposes. So in college, um, we did our scanning at Dartmouth, but um, you know, I was collecting um, some brain imaging data. And so I knew at the time that that was a tool that I wanted to use uh, to probe the brain. And so I guess um, stupidly, or I don't know, I, I just thought, okay, well, I'll decide where to go to school based on the best program I can get into with, you know, the whoever's doing, you know, human brain imaging. And I was lucky enough to get into uh, the PhD program in neuroscience at Berkeley. And that's how I um, uh, joined Mark Desposito's lab. And, um, you know, I guess, yeah, after that, I just, uh, my, my track was pretty laid out at that point. Very cool. Thank you for explaining your your journey into neuroscience. It's kind of cool that you got introduced to neuroimaging so early in your training. Like there must have not been that many labs using that modality at the time. Um, When you kind of got into that research, was there something particular about the idea of neuroimaging that sparked your interest? Yeah. you know, I think I was just fascinated that here we had this tool that allowed us to see in vivo in, uh, you know, the human brain and all of its complexities, you know, at this sort of macroscopic and eventually kind of more um, sort of mesoscopic scales. And it really wasn't until grad school that I learned sort of all of the ways in which, you know, one magnet can collect all kinds of data. So when I joined Mark's lab at the time, he was really interested, you know, and still is to some extent, so really interested in dopamine function. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had really never taken any formal courses in neurochemistry in undergrad. So I was coming in real green. And, but I was, you know, I liked this idea of thinking about sort of neuromodulators, how they shape cognition. Uh, and so I basically said, okay, I'm going to take six months and just lock myself in this office and read any paper that has dopamine in the title, right? And it was in that period of time that I um, stumbled on beautiful work um, coming out of University of Michigan from Jill Becker. And she was looking at um, estracycle mediated increases in dopamine release. So estradiol being able to potentiate dopamine release in the rodent brain. And I was absolutely floored because I was thinking, to my knowledge, nobody at that point in the human cognitive neuroscience space um, who was looking at dopamine function was thinking about uh, you know, estrogen's role in being able to sort of modulate this major uh, neuromodulatory system. And that's basically led me down a rabbit hole, which would lead to uh, the design of my own thesis in Mark's lab. So I guess, I mean, if you were to describe your research to a non-scientist or more of a lay audience, how would you describe it? Well, I I like a quote from uh, a friend and colleague of mine, uh, John Morrison. He's the director of the National Primate Center up at UC Davis. And he likes to say that, you know, sometimes neuroscientists can be so taken by the complexities and the unique capabilities of the brain that we forget something really important about it, which is that it is connected to the rest of our body. 
And I think hormones are a beautiful example of this uh, kind of whole body or brain body um, interconnectedness. And so what I do is really just try to understand how all of the stuff that goes on in our body can influence the stuff that goes on in our head and vice versa. So specifically around uh, these neuroendocrine systems. Um, So how is it that sex hormones that are produced by the ovaries and testes, right, the gonads, um, can travel through our bloodstream and shape aspects of brain structure function. Uh, so my lab, that's really sort of the question that drives my lab is um, understanding the um, the time scale and the circuit on which uh, sex hormones uh, act in the brain um, and thinking about the health implications of those uh, relationships. And we do this really across the life course. That's a great point that you make about hormones being this great way to connect the body and the brain. Um, And I mean, I agree that understanding how those specific hormones affect development, especially in specific developmental windows, I I guess one way that you kind of creatively have addressed it is through this dense sampling work that you've done, looking at the effects of the menstrual cycle on various metrics of um, brain function. And I guess maybe in your words, like, what do you think was most exciting about that finding uh, or that study? Sorry. You know, I remember vividly sitting around a table and, um, you know, thinking about uh, this idea and the emergence of this idea. And we had been reading, uh, of course, Russ Poldrack's, uh, my Connectome papers, uh, other work from the Midnight Scanning Group, right? There had been this sort of um, resurgence of these dense sampling or precision imaging approaches to mapping the brain in its dynamic state. How does a brain change over time? And it's interesting to think that this is really kind of hearkening back to how our field started, which is single case studies, right? HM has, you know, arguably done more for our field than, than um, any thousands or tens of thousands of, of uh, you know, subjects combined because he was so intensely studied and had obviously this um, uh, kind of uh, lesion that was able to uh, to reveal some truths about brain and behavior. But then something interesting happened when fMRI hit the market, which is that we sort of adopted standards of cognitive psychology of doing group averaging, taking, you know, group A and uh, averaging their brains and comparing them to, to group B. So doing this sort of single shot, single time point uh, imaging with group averaging. And that just never really worked for neuroendo. I mean, people have done those studies, um, but it was never the ideal model. And so we were really inspired by um, the dense sampling work because it lends itself perfectly to our problem. Because one feature of the mammalian endocrine system is that hormones ebb and flow over time, right? Production is not static. It follows these very canonical rhythms um, on different timescales. So I have this absolutely brilliant uh, graduate student, Laura Pritchett, who led this project and was the subject for this. And we scanned her brain and drew blood every 24 hours um, for 30 days. And then she did it again one year later as both a replication and extension. That project led to, um, I think, deepened our understanding of the brain's ability to rapidly respond to uh, shifts in hormone production, certainly across the menstrual cycle. We've now followed this up. Um, I have another student, Hannah Grotzinger, who um, has analyzed data from a densely sampled male. This time we looked at diurnal changes, so scanning him every 12 to 24 hours with blood draw um, 
showing that there's about a 60% decline in testosterone and about a 40% decline in estrogen from AM to PM. And the male brain is responding um, on an magnitude similar to that seen in a woman across the cycle. So it's just sort of like the accordion sizes are sort of different. Um, and I, it, it, one of the reasons we wanted to do that study, that what we call 28 and he, mm-hmm. um, is because we really wanted to, to try to debunk or head off uh, a pretty pernicious myth that hormones are a problem and they're a problem specifically for women. You know, the, the reality couldn't be further from the truth. Like, Hormones are not nuisance variables. They're critical modulators in all sexes. Um, and we could, you know, finally have the, the proper designs and methods to really show that uh, in the human brain. I totally hear you. I feel like when I first started my research career and I was thinking about how to handle male and female mice in my study, I got a lot of people telling me that I had to overectimize the females because the hormones would make them too variable. And you know, I thankfully had other good mentors that were like, absolutely not. <laughs> now you have the receipts, right? Now you have all of the variability projects that have come out to debunk that myth. This idea that, you know, females are overall more more variable than males because they have this pesky menstrual cycle. I mean, what's wild to me about that little history of science. Um, so Annalise Beery, of course, co-authored or, you know, was the lead author on an absolutely transformative paper in neuroscience and biobehavioral reviews, where she quantifies the sex bias in basic science, showing that in preclinical biomedical research, not just in neuroscience, but across the biomedical landscape, female animals are, um, are grossly underrepresented, right? Most labs are using male animals. Irv Zucker's group, led by um, Brian Pendergast, ran a variability project where they looked at something like 10,000 different endpoints from sort of molecular cellular cascades all the way up to behavior and just pulled, um, you know, not the mean levels of that variable between males and females, but the dispersion, right, the coefficient of variation, the dispersion around the mean, and showed that there was no variable in which female animals were more variable than males. And there was like half a dozen or so in which the males were more variable than females. So if we're using that litmus test, you know, as our marker, like let's chuck the males and study females because they're the more consistent. And this is in unstaged females. So, and this has since been followed up. Um, Rebecca Shansky's group uh, just have, uh, has a similar paper out uh, again. um, There's no credence to this. And it's wild to me that these feelings, right? These ideas that uh, people have and then just trust, right? Like as scientists, you should never just like trust these in your intuition, like empirically test these because it's a total falsehood. And yet that falsehood meant for 50 years, right? For half a century, we have lost out on critical insights about sex differences in biology because we haven't been studying uh, female animals. There's other biases we can talk about in the human brain imaging literature, but the biases happening in the preclinical animal model world is just bonkers to me. And not just me, obviously the NIH, um, you know, following Annalise's report in 2011, um, they in 2016, as you know, you and, and, and hopefully the OHBM community knows, put out uh, the sex as a biological variable policy, mandating the inclusion of both sexes in preclinical research. And I think it's worth noting that um, Janine Clayton, who's the director of the Office of Research on Women's Health, 
pioneered that. Um, and I don't think it's, it's not lost on me and hopefully not lost on, on this audience that these were women who pushed for change, who recognized the problem and pushed for change. And, uh, I think probably made a pretty indelible mark on science as a result. In your opinion, like what is, what are some ways in which we can kind of police that? Like, is it preventing papers that don't include both sexes from being published unless that disorder or whatever is being studied is, is really only present in one sex or? Yeah, um, I think yeah. we have a lot of handles. Um, I think training our students to understand, right? Education is always key. So let's debunk some of these pernicious myths that might have led people to think it was reasonable to only study males. Like, let's just get rid of that, those falsehoods from the start in our undergraduate classes, certainly in our graduate training. Um, you know, the NIH is using uh, carrot and stick approaches of, of withholding funding if there's not a valid excuse. Um, and I think editorial boards have the power to to say gosh this is a really interesting finding but you only did it in males come back to us when you replicate or extend um or even um making journal articles tack on right like two words to the end of each uh, uh title where you can say you know whatever your finding is dot 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 in males like make it explicit in the title um that this is uh, not a representative sample. So all of those things, right? Both carrot and stick approaches, I think could help um, shake us from some, yeah, some norms in the field that aren't justified in keeping around. Something else that comes to mind is also that sometimes like the media kind of picks up on these findings and warps them in certain ways. like. What would you say are some ways in which we can ensure that the lay press is actually um, representing findings appropriately in this kind of women's health and sex and gender space? Yeah, that's a good point. And scientists have different approaches to how they approach the media. Um, in my lab, because of the kinds of questions that we ask, I tell my students that it's really important to think about the ways in which your science can get misconstrued. So you actually, you know, I think it is the public responsibility, the, the uh, responsibility of scientists to help disseminate their findings in an accurate way, right? Because hidden knowledge is not science, right? We share science, um, but if you can, you wanna make sure that there aren't any gross misrepresentations. Um, this, I can give a specific example. Um, I have a postdoc in my lab, Caitlin Taylor, and she is doing some fascinating work thinking about um, what happens when we modulate, uh, exogenously modulate hormones. Um, so for example, with uh, oral hormonal contraceptives, right, or the pill, um, or other forms like IUD, patch pill, et cetera. And she came to me wanting to ask this question of like, essentially, what does the pill do to the brain? Mm -hmm. Because my lab had studied endogenous hormones. So it's a natural follow-up question. Um, what happens if we start to sort of pharmacologically manipulate? And I was worried that whatever we found, the press would sort of get it wrong or people would cherry pick data in order to fit their political ends. And that scared me. And then after, you know, a bit of time, I realized that 
this experiment is playing out whether we choose to look. We don't have a great answer um, to understand what, if any, um, impact it might have. And that also felt a little unsettling. Like, why is it that women are sort of um, don't have fundamental answers to questions about their body? So anyway, that's that's one example of how I think our science has really sort of butted up potentially against um the sort of, you know, media and political world. And uh, we just put out um, an opinion piece in Nature Neuroscience last week about this. So, you know, you can read sort of what our thoughts are on how taking that as a toy example of how neuroscience should proceed systematically. Um, and so are you hoping to now amass like a large mega data set of contraceptives and various... Yeah. Types. Yeah. So that that conversation really uh, kickstarted um, what would eventually become years later the Anas Bowers Women's Brain Health Initiative. So Caitlin said, "I said, okay, Caitlin, like you know, let's let's look at this, let's explore this question, but we got to go big. I don't want to do this piecemeal. Let's build something that is unabashedly, unapologetically for advancing women's brain health." Um, and so, you know, again, I'm, I am lucky enough to be part of the University of California system. And this is where we realize we're sitting on um, a huge treasure trove of data uh, because we are one of UCSB is one of 10 campuses um, throughout the state that are all tied together under the umbrella of University of California. Within that system, we have eight uh, research-dedicated brain imaging centers uh, that generate data from about 10,000 unique uh, individuals annually. So what would happen if we could harness the power of, um, of that data and sort of add in um, some metadata that we um, might be interested in um, about, say, these questions of, of pill use, et cetera? So that's, that, in, in a breath, is what we're doing through the Ann Bowers WBHI is creating taking women's health prime time by creating um, a big data, open access neuroimaging database um, that can address some pretty basic questions of women's brain health. Um, we are grateful to uh, our funders for supporting this vision and grateful to Russ Poldrack, whose team at Stanford is serving as our data coordinating center. Um, we have not formally uh, launched this uh, as of this taping. We are in the process of um, piecing it all together, but um, I'm just really, I'm, I'm hopeful that this will be of interest to the OHBM community when, when the first data release comes about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's amazing to hear. Um, I feel like you're, you're definitely a trailblazer on, uh, you know, understanding women's health, uh, both, you know, from this like contraceptive, uh, hormonal contraceptive perspective, but also, you know, you've done a lot of work on, um, understanding what's going on in the brain of uh, people going through menopause. And I guess um, a lot of these topics make me wonder, like, how can we actually implement these findings that you're bringing to light um, to inform public policy surrounding women's physical and mental health? Like, how do you see the link between science and policy there? I think first, I feel so almost overwhelmed in a good sense, but almost overwhelmed 
by how little we know. And sometimes I have to remind myself of that because like, again, my lab, you know, we can kind of put our blinders on and we're in the thick of things of, you know, studying all of these questions. So it feels, this is our world. It's our whole world. And there are other brilliant scientists in this space, but actually not that many. Um, so Laura Pritchett, um, again, my graduate student is working on a survey uh, paper um, and she has gone back and looked um, since from 1995 to present day, how many human brain imaging papers have considered any aspect of brain health specific to women? Um, so thinking about things like how does the menstrual cycle or or contraceptives or pregnancy or menopause or any kind of hormone based contra you know medications? How does it? How do they shape the brain? And in the last 30 years, less than half of 1% of brain imaging articles ever published have addressed the totality of uh, those health factors that are, that are unique to women, right? Half the world's population. Um, so I think from a policy perspective, I wouldn't even start with the sort of public policy, but just lab culture, lab or field specific culture. How do we make women's health more salient and more relevant. Um, and, you know, my hope is that by, you know, giving platforms like this, like by being able to give a talk at OHBM and sharing some of our work, we can inspire other people that these are fascinating questions to ask. And mm. so we have a woman who underwent brain imaging um, preconception every two weeks throughout the gestational window up to two years postpartum. Yeah. And it's, you know, the data are shocking, right? We see these incredible changes in cortical thickness and gray matter volume at both the sort of gross scale, also using kind of high resolution um, uh, scans of the hippocampus. We can see neuroplasticity happening within um, subregions of the medial temporal lobe. We see uh, striking changes in uh, diffusion metrics, looking at uh, quantitative anisotropy. This is in a remarkable period of brain plasticity. And yet, you know, we have almost no knowledge of this this period of, um, you know, developmental trajectories. There's been, um, you know, a wonderful group in Europe um, that looked at the brain pre and postpartum. This is the Hexima uh, Nature Neuroscience article showing differences in the brain between these two. And that was a fascinating paper. Um, but up until that point, there hadn't been almost nothing in humans um, showing the brain uh as the sort of um, the organizational effects of steroid hormones over the gestational window. And I think that that's wrong for two reasons. First, the brain is an endocrine organ. So if we're not thinking about it in its endocrine context, you're missing something pretty essential about it. And number two, you know, when you look across the life course, we know that rates of major neurological and neuropsychiatric conditions like depression, like Alzheimer's disease, these have um, sex-skewed uh, incidence and prevalency rates. So for these two, depression and Alzheimer's disease, women um, are represent two-thirds of the population. So if we want to get a handle on why that is the case, we need to design our questions to be able to uncover right those answers. Absolutely, yeah. Um... I'm preaching it's, to the choir because you know this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've got my pom pom <laughs> here in the background. <laughs> um, but I agree. I mean, I think 
even in the animal literature, this this kind of work is missing. But if we can go straight to the human and understand the species of interest, then why not, right? I'm curious um, if you can give us a sneak peek. I know you touched upon some of them, but uh, about the topics that you are going to cover in your OHBM keynote talk. Yeah. So I'm going to do two things. I hope I'm going to accomplish two things. I want to convince everybody um, of the power of sex steroid hormones and the role that they play in shaping the brain over multiple time scales, you know, for example, across the menopausal transition, right, which is a five or six year state versus, you know, the kinds of changes that we can see rapidly, even over a 24 hour window. So I'll share some data that I'm uh, working on in collaboration with my partner in crime in life, um, uh, Michael Gord's lab who's doing astrocycle monitoring using two photon calcium imaging and showing um, real-time changes in dendritic spines um, uh, in awake behaving animals and mapping that to functional changes in place field stability and remapping. Um, it's just beautiful work that's that's absolutely building on Catherine Woolley's seminal 1990 paper. And so, yeah, hopefully that goal will be to, to really convince you that, that sex hormones are just absolutely fascinating for understanding basic features of how the brain works and functions, and then maybe end on uh, a more philosophical, maybe bordering on sort of political um, questions of how come it's taken us this long to realize? <laughs> what can we do to ensure that um, there aren't more dormant questions that are dormant because uh, of the scientists who are asking the questions? And um, you know, I think scientists can't answer questions that they can't see. And um, for a field in which 80% of tenured neuroscience professors are male, it's not surprising that women's health hasn't been, you know, elevated to the level that maybe it should be. And so uh, I'll hopefully make the case that diversity in science is not just a matter of social justice, right? It's not just the right thing to do. Uh, it actually makes science better. I'm very excited for this talk, and I think it will serve a lot of people in our community um, to hear to hear all the, about all the work that you're doing on this topic. So thank you. Um, I know in your bio it says that you um, and your lab members kind of partner with K-12 groups to advance girls' representation in STEM, um, which I think is such a great initiative. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you got involved in that and how your lab members engage in it. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's this recognition that diversity matters. And if I'm going to stand up and say that, um, we better be part of the change. And so for my lab, one of the things we pay attention to is making sure that we can uh, debunk myths about who a scientist is, what a scientist does, who's worthy of being a scientist. Uh, and that means getting into the populations, schools that, um, you know, starting young, where we can um, hopefully uh, reach out and find students who are interested and really kind of show them, show them the way forward. So really, truly, we work with all age groups. Um, uh, one of my favorites uh, is with Girls Inc. Um, this is a, a girls organization that's nationwide at this point. We have an active uh, membership here in the Goleta, Santa Barbara, uh, kind of central coast of California area. And one really cool thing that we did 
is using the Frontiers and Young Minds platform. So this is a journal under the Frontiers umbrella uh, that Bob Knight helped founded. And you can kind of bring them into the process where they read and give you feedback. And let me tell you, they are on it. And then the paper gets published and their names and pictures are listed as reviewers. Um, so it's a really, really fun process uh, that we hope to do again. Um, and sometimes it's it's just pure pomp and we just go in, um, you know, with brains and, you know, people can like slap on gloves and really have that just sort of pure fun tactile experience of just seeing and holding a brain for the first time. So, you know, we do it all depending on the age group. <laughs> That's awesome. That sounds like, I mean, a, a great way to just connect with the community and inspire young minds to maybe pursue science. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that the other thing is that it's not like, so let's just take sort of gender diversity as the problem. It's not like we have to convince girls that science is cool. They get it. So honestly, part of it is just like putting up the bumper lanes so that the world doesn't crush that spirit. Um, and, you know, watch picture scientist, um, you know, for, for the lived experience of what it is like to be a woman in STEM. Um, it's a, you know, fabulous film. The thing is like those social factors start at breathtakingly young ages. Uh, you know, we know that by about age five or six, there are um, sort of uh, social stereotyped myths about brilliance. So there's this sort of link between how these stereotypes skid under the skin um, and their choices, uh, the choices that they make, the kinds of activities that they allow themselves to be drawn to or that they pursue. So this is why in my lab, it's like, we can't start our college students like I want to start in the kindergartners right in the preschoolers like get them while before the world has crushed their poor little spirits yeah. <laughs> this is taking a dark turn I have a daughter yeah. can you tell so I'm like stay out of her way <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's really sad to hear that as as a woman as well um but I think it's also so powerful to have that information because now we can act on it and hopefully improve things for the next generation of scientists. Yeah. yeah. And if we're going to do all of the legwork of giving them the space to cultivate their own intrinsic curiosity and to follow that passion, let's not squash it also you know, at any other stage of that game. We know um, 2019, right, a report in Nature came out showing that um, in the United States, half of all female scientists leave full-time science after having their first child. And to be clear, right, like women are not leaving because they're not good enough for the job. They're likely leaving because the job is not good enough for them, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they are suddenly having to choose between low paycheck, lack of high quality, affordable childcare, this isn't a choice, right? They are being, right, this idea of a leaky pipeline is is aberrant. They're not just like flowing out of the system. They are being actively pushed out by by bonkers choices. So, um, so this isn't just, again, it's not just a social justice issue. This is like, are we serious about wanting um, to support science at its best? And if we are, then we've got a major problem that needs to be addressed. That dovetails into a closing question I can ask, like what 
what is some advice that you would share with um, early trainees or the OHBM community in general about um, how, to, how to deal with this? I think um, the best science comes when you're not fed by fear, but by curiosity. And also taking time and recognizing that science is a really important part of what we do, but it's not everything. And um, I think it's important, especially as we address real mental health crises in our graduate students that we say, go literally go take a hike, like go look up at the stars at night, go remember that you are on this planet for a blink of an eye, just go have fun and do the best science that you personally are capable of doing and don't compare yourself to anybody else. <laughs>